Let's turn to Luke, the second chapter, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Would you stand with me again as we honor God's word and read together? Again, we're holding to the whole context, even though we're talking about a portion of this, the shepherds, toward the last portion of this reading. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the availability of your word. We thank you, Father, that it is accurate, it is reliable, it is inspired. It's the breath, the very breath of God coming forth to us as we read it in order that we can ultimately obey it. And I thank you, Father, for this beautiful, glorious story of a night when angels sang, when shepherds were awakened through fear and amazement, the beginning of a gospel being revealed, a gospel that has been carried by their voice and their persons from place to place, and through that word from generation to generation until the advent of our hearts took place. When your appearing came to us, each of us can identify very specifically with everything in this story. Each of us who are awakened by new birth, belief, and from that belief comes repentance and calling and passion and excitement to tell others what has happened to us. And in a glorious way, this story is our story today. And I pray, Father, you'll give us the courage, the insight to be that same mouthpiece of a message 
of this glorious Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray in his name today. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. Verse 8 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. I find it so really amazing, you know, even the Advent reading today, the little history you heard, we heard together about the history of shepherds and how they went back all the way to the time of Abraham, um, even before Abraham, very likely Abraham's father was a shepherd, and so the shepherding movement began all throughout antiquity, and we see God's people those he calls his own, were ones that took up the role of shepherds. All the way back to the time of Jacob when they went to try to find some food and because there was famine in the land, it says. And so they sent their, he sent his sons there. And remember the story, Joseph previously had been taken and sold in the, by the Midianites. And so we see... Um, him, him already in Egypt, and the whole miracle of Egypt with Joseph there. And then finally, Jacob was brought. Pharaoh never saw a guy this old, you know, old guy. It was really marvelous to them. And then Pharaoh himself said, you know, we don't want you to leave. We don't want you to go anywhere. We want you to stay with us. So what a profound story. You'd think, boy, they got it made, don't they? They got it made forever. They could be... You know, for 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years, they could just have it made. And what did they say they were? They were the most disgusting thing that a person could be to an Egyptian. They were shepherds. It was their profession, their livelihood. But it made a place for them. And it was in this place called Goshen. Remember over there in Goshen? He didn't... I, I'm not sure that the... That the uh, that the Egyptian ruler chose the best place in all of Egypt to put them. He put them in a place where they could be over there. We love these guys over there. So they had their, they were shepherds. And from that position, of course, they were prospered and rose up. And what was a glorious position before the Pharaoh soon became, after everyone forgot about who the Pharaoh and Joseph and everyone else, it became despised so greatly that they became servants and um, having no value even above the animals that they had taken care of prior to that time. And so shepherding is something that's in the, it's in the, the, um, the mainstream of Israel. So as we see Moses being the deliverer of Egypt, and he often talked about, by the way, there were still shepherds when they left too, they were slaves, but they also had flocks and so forth they took with them when they left. And so we see this. We could just, and, and so I'm giving detail at the front, and I'm going to stop my detail very quickly, okay, with the assumption that we see that this didn't just, this just wasn't some isolated event in, history, in the history of Israel. But in reality, it was in the mainstream of Israel. And so we come all the way to this starry night, and... He doesn't have to go into a great deal of effort to tell us, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock. Shepherds, all the way to this time, were someone of a semi-nomadic people. Now, nomadic people are ones that travel with the seasons. They, they travel long distances often. They wander around. Uh, shepherds were very much like that, but they confined themselves to the general area of their, of their birth. And even though they could have had as much as a 500-mile circumference around that area, because they'd moved from place to place where there was literally um, green grass and water, as the Psalms tells us in Psalms chapter 23, that phrase that we're all familiar with of, 
still waters and green pastures. This wasn't just you know, some poetic idea that the psalmist came up with. This David, the king, what did he do as a boy? He was a shepherd. Joseph was a shepherd. All these persons who rose up even to places of promise were shepherds, and they had contact with sheep. And on this night, some of these green pastures and still waters were near Bethlehem. And it just coincidentally happened that these shepherds just happened to be a little ways away from Bethlehem that night. If, we, if we're just walking up into the context of this that night, we don't know a child's being born. We don't know that something great's happened. We don't know that Herod has tried to kill the, the infants. We don't, we don't know about the wise men. We don't know anything. We're just shepherds. We're watching, washing, washing. They didn't wash their sheep much. That's why they smelled like them. They, but they, but they, they were watching their flocks. They were caring for their flocks. And it says they lived outside. They didn't go out and take their sheep in every night from March until November of every year. They would be going from place to place. And that's why they're called semi-nomadic in that they're kind of like the small version of the large version of nomads person that, that go far distances and travel. And, and so it kind of raises the question of, well, I don't want to go into that too much. I might mention in a second here. But they made their living from the sheep. And as we saw the little brief description of, of wool and cheese and milk, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. When I wrote that thing about five years ago, um, I put cheese and milk in that list. And um, maybe you can straighten me out, those of you who are still shepherds. I don't know. Any shepherds among us? <laughs> Did it happen to be here today because they're kind of, yeah. Oh, yeah, farmer, okay. Do, do you milk sheep? <laughs> no, okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> but So whoever wrote that was wrong. <laughs> we need to edit that, Chris. Where are you? <laughs> I need to edit. So, but, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have their living from the sheep because they sold the wool. And they kept the wool. And they used the wool for themselves. They used the wool also as a product to others. And they used the sheep themselves. See, all the way back to the time of Jacob when he was in the land of um, his father-in-law Laban, that the whole thing of the sheep and the goats and the spotted lambs and the speckled lambs and all that stuff that you know, we see the math going on and how God blessed him by giving him the abundance of whatever, went, whatever he was given ownership of. One moment he had the speckled lambs and they then suddenly had lots of lambs. Then he had the striped lambs and they all, they all reproduced. And so he see his, the, the, the sheep themselves were also sold and bought. And in some cases they were even cared for. They cared for the sheep of other people as they took them among themselves. And they, they cared for them in that they didn't just watch them. They defended them. They put their life in between them and predators of wolves and dogs and people even. And they protected them. And then during certain times of the year, it's not, it's, it's, it's not likely at all that they had some farm someplace that they kind of came back to during the wintertime and took them on their farm into their, into their, their stables or something like that. They would have places that would be out in the countryside where they would migrate toward and plan to be there during wintertime so they could go into a familiar cave or a place where other shepherds would also gather for the winter. And it was like a community of people that was completely isolated mostly from the whole fabric of the land of Israel. It was a little, it was a little band. Sometimes it would be their own shepherd flock, and sometimes there'd be others with them, particularly during this wintertime, when they're trying to find warmth in the winter. So it was, a, it was a, a very unique kind of a trade, and very similar to that relationship that it had with Israel. Shepherds at the time of Jesus were also persons who were looked as not outcast, but isolated from Israel. They didn't live in the cities. They were kind of like the free grazers, you know, 
uh, with cattle, where they'd kind of come across the plain and stay there for a while and then move on to the next place that was green. So they, they they were isolated people. They weren't people that were in the mainstream, although they did have ability to communicate things. They were persons who could tell Stories because they'd been there. They'd been in places all during this whole pilgrimage time, this nomadic time frame in which they would hear stories and they would tell stories and they would pass information and so forth. So when we say, you know, if you have a secret, don't tell a shepherd. If you, ha- if you, tell, if you want information to get out, tell a shepherd. It would get out, but it didn't get out really fast. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't like sending an email. Okay, so an email isn't really a great example. It's more like giving somebody a bottle with a message in it and saying, carry this with you. And so as they go through this trek over this entire annual process, they would share things and they would know things. And as a result, they were, they, they were people that could communicate within their context. And I think that's important for us to think about. They, they communicated in their own context. What is a messenger? And more specifically, what's a messenger of Christ? What does the Great Commission mean to us? Go into all the world and share the gospel with every creature. Baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Disciple them. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. How do we accomplish that? How do you accomplish that as a disciple? How do you do it? If you're a shepherd and you're an isolated person or a person who's got your own life, do you leave your life? Get up and stop being a shepherd, or whatever you are, in this case a shepherd. They just say, well, you know, we got to get this news out, so we're no longer going to be shepherds. No, they didn't leave what they were doing, and they didn't pick up their game to say, you know, we got to move these sheep along because we got to get a lot more people to hear this story. They just told this story as they went their way. That should be instructive. Go into all the world. Go into your portion of all the world. You can't go into all the world. When you're a Christian, did anybody hand you a credit card and said, American Express, unlimited credit, and you don't have to pay any of it back. Just go to the whole world and tell the gospel to everybody. Wouldn't that be cool? I've always wanted to travel. I'm a Christian, so I guess I get to travel now and go everywhere and tell everybody in the whole world about Jesus. No, it's their world. Even this pers- these persons who were kind of isolated from the community, they had a world that was out there. Other shepherds to start with, their own families that were with them. They might even practice on the sheep, I don't know. But they were committed to their context. Before they were sending out a message like this, they were already ones who were living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flock at night, doing their life. Can we define what our life is? Does Christianity confuse our life because we really don't know what we're supposed to do or where we're supposed to go? Often that's the case. A person becomes a Christian and they think, I'm in a whole new world. I've got to give up everything I'm doing. I've got to go someplace else. I've got to start something new. The reality is, that's not how Christ calls us. Paul said in His letter to the Corinthians, wherever you find yourself, when you come to Christ, stay in that place. Now it's in the seventh chapter, he's certainly talking about the relationship of marriage, but even even a marriage that seems to be non-Christian with a spouse that's non-Christian or some kind of conflict, then it says, stay where you are. Why? Because something's going to happen where you are. If you receive Christ and whatever your occupation is, whatever your position geographically is, whatever your language is, where you find yourself, if you receive Christ, you're responsible suddenly for that piece of the world. Not you have to, but you can reach that part of the world. Shepherds can talk to shepherds. You ever ever notice that? I'm in IT. Okay, well, let's talk about everything except IT because I don't know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about IT. Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I teach the Bible. I tell people, I teach the Bible. 
kind of the reaction. That's good. I mean, you want to be you want to be alone at a party? Go to a party where no one's Christians and it's like some real estate thing or something like that. Go in there and the first person comes up. They talk for a minute. You seem real interesting. Oh, they're and what do you do? Oh, I'm a real estate agent. I'm a broker. I do this, this, and this. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. And, oh, really? Ah, you start seeing backing away. And not only that, but they also share the message all the way out to the party. Next thing you know, no one there wants to be near you. You a cop? Anybody a cop or no cop? That's not enough. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you're a cop, you tell somebody on a casual basis, well, where's Penny? Is she here? Penny, her husband's a cop. I talked to him about this once. He said, you're exactly right. He said, I said, you go someplace, you say, well, I'm you know, Sandy's dad or Penny's husband. No, 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 where is it? Said, what do you do? Well, I'm a cop. And they go, okay. <laughs> Get away. I don't know if you felt that way in your occupation or not. Some are more potent than others, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm a, whatever, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Whatever. <laughs> By the way, let's, let's keep moving here if we can, John. Um, the season for shepherds out in the field was between March and November. And so as a result, just as a side, likely December 25th, 0001, was not the birthday of Jesus. Okay, if this old context means anything. Now, I know you've been waiting for this sermon for a long time, George, but it's not coming today, okay? I just wanted to mention that, kind of <laughs> tease George a little bit, because it's a very deep wormhole, and I'm not planning on going down this hole today. But it's clear that shepherds weren't out in the field in December. Because it's winter time, bitter winter. They're in some cave someplace. Even though they're out someplace, they're not in the fields. And that's all there is to say about that. So they're keeping watch over their flocks at night. And then we looked at this last week. We looked at a portion of this last week. An angel of a Lord appeared to them. Suddenly, the, the heavens were split open. Literally, they, they, it, it wasn't like they came from heaven someplace and then finally got here after, you know, 500 light years away is heaven or something like that on the other side of the universe. And so they kind of came here and they got here and they arrived just on time. And then they found this flock of shepherds. No, they suddenly, heaven just broke open. Heaven is near us. We're not far except in our own humanity, in our own fallenness. We have no ability to conceive of it or perceive of it, but it's here. It's near us. Heaven's not away from us. Why? Because heaven's filled with spirit beings. God himself is a spirit. God is ever-present. He's everywhere all the time. And his fullness and his simplicity is known to himself only. God's infinite, but it's not difficult for him because he's God. For us, on the other hand, we can't see further than me. If we could see further than me, from my sin nature, from this fallenness that I have ever since my father Adam, if I could somehow see beyond that, I would see these things. It says that Adam walked with God. What does that mean? Does it mean that God particularly came near Adam? God is particularly near us. But our eyes are not blinded by self-awareness and by sin that makes us think that the most Lofty and high and expansive thing is me. I can't see beyond me. So suddenly, here are these shepherds out there. I don't know what they were talking about that night. Getting kind of cold. Getting near December 25th. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking about. It's cold. It was outside. Might have been on the warm side that night. I don't know what they were talking about. They were talking about that sheep over there that they really keep watching on. I don't know what they're talking about. But whatever it is, an advent took place. An eruption took place. Suddenly, they're in a presence. There's an appearing before them of an angel. Just one angel to start with. And then as they get kind of accustomed to the one angel, isn't it kind of interesting the first thing the angel says to them? 
After you see the glory of the Lord shone around them, they were terrified. But the angel said to them, first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think if I was a shepherd and I was unenlightened to all this and I saw this fiery throne of glory and majesty and obviously power. I don't know where the angel appeared. Up there, down here, over there. Just this presence of this new experience, this new dimension, completely new. C.S. Lewis and his, his books on the galaxies or whatever, I forget what it's called now, time travel, it wasn't time travel, but his, his space trilogy. You ever read those? Any of them? He makes this attempt to try, yeah, he makes this attempt to try to show what heaven would be like. An otherworldly kind of place. But he's got this big problem, and you start reading it, it's almost comical. The only way he can describe this is saying what it's like. He can't ever tell us what it is. He only tells us what it's like. And so you feel like you're basically in a candy shop with lots of cotton candy and things like that around, with all these pastel colors and things. And after a while, you think, ah, let's get out of here. These stories of people going to heaven. He went to heaven, and they came back. You ever see those books? There's some books make a lot of money and a lot of influence. Really? No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived, what the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. This place that we have, it's, it's not like it's just really a lot better than here. It's something I can't comprehend because it's like nothing here. There's nothing to say it's like. And so when a person comes back and says, oh, it was beautiful, it was beautiful, it was beautiful. You know, that's, that's the last one I read a little bit of. By the way, Jesus said, no one's ever gone up to heaven and come down again except the Son of Man. It kind of should stop the whole argument, right? But we see this terror that's coming from this overwhelming of what is this? What are we looking at? And this epiphany, this advent, their terror, and the first words are, oh, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Someone told me to not be afraid. I'm already afraid. I'm already beyond controlling myself. And then he says to them, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. What is all that? How is that, how is that like us? We don't just get saved in order to be better people. You know, I had a very dear person who used to say to me, even if Christianity is not true, it's a really great way to live. Maybe you've heard something akin to that. And he was trying to convince me as a young teenager, you should be a Christian just because it's a good way to live. But that's not the purpose of Christianity. Purpose of Christianity is not to just find a better way to live. It's not to have the sense that I'm a better person. It's not even ultimately to have the sense that I'm a forgiven person. I'm a redeemed person. I'm a righteous person in God's eyes. Or even that I have peace with God. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Pastor Melson was sharing. The peace we have is not just some nice feeling about myself. It's a sense that I'm not at war with God anymore. Now that's something that we can't really grasp completely until we're going to be with Him, right? Because we, we have ourselves to contend with. Well, you know, God doesn't love me anymore because, you know, I didn't go to church yesterday. I mean, there's a lot of people here today that, you know, God's mad at you. Not you, because you came. But people are mad. He's mad at people. <laughs> He's mad at people because they didn't come to church. 
Then come to church, and whoever they are, you know, it's on your own, man. Is that what it is? You're going to do something to get it? We recognize that this angel came with a specific purpose, and it wasn't to say, oh, you who are greatly favored to see me and to see heaven, and I'm going to... You know, I'm going to fix you up. I'm going to make you feel good. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to do something for you. You're going to be rich and full of wisdom. First thing he says is, don't be afraid, number one. And secondly, he says, he says you're receiving something. You're a, you are receiving something. I bring you, bring you good news. I'm bringing it to you. You're receiving it. You didn't go find it. You didn't have to work for it. It's not because you're favored. I'm bringing something to you. That's the first thing. They were receiving something. They were receiving what is called good news. In Mark's Gospel, he talks about glad tidings. The Gospel of glad tidings. Now you know it's an editorial thing when you see the Bible written, what it'll use is a word that you don't understand, and then it'll automatically give you a word you do understand. And the technique is that the first word is some kind of a new word, new, new usage, but the second word describes what the first word means. Right? So he says, I'm bringing you good news. Good news. Glad tidings. The gospel. What does gospel mean? It means a message of glad tidings. Something's going to make you glad. You're going to receive a message that's going to make you glad. Make you glad. First recipient of the gospel. Boy. First thing that was my reaction to the gospel is, I just felt so, so overwhelmed with God's goodness that I couldn't talk. Everybody thought I was sad just because I was crying like a, you know, you know, infant. I wasn't crying because I, I, I go like as I and say, now, what is it you're here for? And I go, <laughs> he asked me like five times. And Karen would go, well, now, I think that maybe he's thinking this and he's doing that, like my translator or something, right? <laughs> it was really kind of comical. And I, the poor guy, missionary from Japan, he was there as one of the counselors for all the people that are coming forward to become Christians. And that guy must have thought, I wonder if that guy can really talk. Because all he did here was he tried, and he started crying every time he tried to talk. And it was like 15 minutes. At one point, he starts talking about Japan and his mission and all this kind of stuff, try to calm us down. I'm going, okay, I'm going to calm down. That's good. That's, that's nice to hear. And he says, so now, John, what is it? And I go, <laughs> start crying again. I couldn't, couldn't control myself. I was, suddenly I had something that was mine. Some, something I had to, to, that was making me happy. It was overwhelming me. It was taking away fear. And here, these shepherds, in their terror, he says to them, you're going to receive the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings. And what does he say about that message? It says, a message that would cause great joy. Cause great joy for not only you, but for all people. The message of Christianity brings great joy for all people. Even those that tag along behind it with reluctance to commit. Or they think it's a matter of commitment. They think it's a matter of me doing something. But they kind of tag along behind and have an affinity for it. It gives them a sense of joy when there are other Christians. You know, my mother was a Christian. And I remember those days when my mother used to do da-da-da-da-da. It makes me happy just to think about my mother or my father or my friend or, you know, some church I used to go to or some pastor I knew. It's joy for all people. And he says, so we see this. Receiving the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings, a message that would cause great joy, a message for all people. Verse 11, the specific place where this event would take place would be in the town of David. The town of David. Now, if you lived anywhere, you know, when we're on trip, 
and I don't do this anymore because I, I think people should know where Maryland is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, but you're in Denver, L.A. Those are two we've been in recently. And you meet somebody new, and they say, "Where are you from?" And you go, "I'm from Maryland." In fact, I'm from Germantown, Maryland. They go, eh, like you know, what's that's the dark side of the moon or the light side of the moon? I'm not sure which side it is. You know, what is that? And so Karen says this. She says, we're from the D.C. area. And they go, oh, yeah, nation's capital. We went there when I was in seventh grade. Oh, oh, oh you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> if you lived in this vicinity and you, were, you called yourself a shepherd or Israel or whatever, you, you're an Israelite, a Jew, you're, you're a Jew, and they say the city of David. You know, see, the first thing he says is the city of David. That's the historic relationship. This city wasn't just the city where David was born. David literally purchased the city. It was his personal city. That's why he called it the city of David. It was his. As he, of course, he, as he, you know, like I go down Veersville Road sometimes, I see it on 1334 Veersville Road, I see that old house I used to live in when I was growing up, and I think, man, they, that's a dump. They've made that into a real dump. And I, and I get this grandiose idea that one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to buy that house, I'm going to fix it up, and it's going to be, I think, nah, I'm not really doing that. The city of David, the town of David, which is the birthplace of King David. King David, you know, the king after Saul. King David, the town of bread, Bethlehem. Bethlehem was its name that came to be known as Bethlehem. It was because of the place where David and his men were fed bread in the house of bread. And this place was nearby them. He goes on to say, there is a Savior born. That a, there is a Savior. That there, a Savior would be born. He's going to be the Messiah. A Savior. And that, that word Savior has a range of meaning within the Greek language and even in the Hebrew language. And it, it goes to the point of leader person who's going to save a judge. For example, in the Old Testament, all the judges in the Old Testament, they were saviors. They were ones that God raised up to rescue Israel from its dilemmas. Ending with, of course, Samuel, the greatest of the judges. But they were saviors. They knew what this was, to be saved by someone, to be delivered by someone. And at this time, the hope of Israel was that one day, Someone was going to come. Their hope was that someone, someone was going to come that was going to throw off Rome. The great Satan. The oppressor. And Israel had oppressor after oppressor after oppressor throughout the whole history. And their, dream, their hope was that one day God was going to send the One, the Savior, and of course these are linked together, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Deliverer King was going to come and He was going to throw off the oppressor. Of course, to these shepherds, that was Rome. This was the context. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. This is a little new information here. He is the Lord. We see this linking together of the One, the Person, and the Lord together. Of course, we recognized from our more sophisticated study and understanding. This is talking about the Incarnation. This is the Incarnate One. This isn't just a guy. This is a person who at His birth, according to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The second member of the Trinity, the Word. And this second member of the Trinity, God Himself, joins with humanity as God takes on flesh. And they share in this incarnate relationship. Now, how many of you would guess that that was very clear to the disciples? I mean, to these shepherds when they heard that that night. But the information's there, isn't it? It's all there. All the information's there. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And verse 12, how are you going to know who He is? Can you imagine just left up to them? You're looking at an angel, the hosts of heaven, and they all start singing. What did that sound like? 
this overwhelming feeling. I remember being out at Bible Temple out in Portland, Oregon in 1979 when I was going on this little, this little trip to see what was going on other, in California when it came to churches and the way they were structuring themselves and home groups were really big to me back then. We were, I was with a group of four, four or five people. We were going to place after place. We went to Bible Temple. With all these other churches, they were kind of interesting and nice and they were big churches and some had lots of things. But at Bible Temple, um, we went in and we were told to come to pre-service prayer. So I went to, with you know the people I was with, four of us I think, and we went in, and I thought this is going to be really interesting because you know, you know frankly I'm, I'm a man of prayer. That's, that's, that's kind of how I was thinking. I got this part. I mean this part I know. So we go in and there's, I think we're going to about 15, 20 people sitting in a chair and we're going to one by one and pray for you know Aunt Nellie and sister so and so and blah blah blah. We had about four thousand people in that church and there's probably four thousand people in that morning prayer dark. Of course, I want to get up front because, you know, I want to be real where the action is, but the action started being all around me. And so a person comes and said, well, we're going to spend the next half hour, we're going to be praying for the service and praying for God to move and praying for deliverance for people and doing all this kind of stuff. And then he says, so let's just start. And he goes, hallelujah, hallelujah. And all of a sudden, this whole place goes, and if I yelled, I wouldn't be able to hear myself. And I, I remember thinking, Okay, I'm going to pray and I go, pray. Oh, what is this? And it just, it literally just astounded me. I remember backing over, I was near some seats and I went and just kind of sat down in a seat and I was looking around me like, oh my God, my God, what is this? Who are, what is this? Who do I think I am? What an arrogant person. Who do I think I am? And there's suddenly in a presence like that, except magnified by eternity, capacity of infinity around them of this. And now they're being told to go and find the one who's coming from there. Who would you go looking for? Where's the highest palace I can find around here? Who's the most impressive king? I'm going to look for horses and chariots and power. I'm look for great things. Isn't that what you'd look for? Would you? Go find a king. Go find a savior. Go find someone who's going to touch every person and bring joy to every person. Go find the person. He's going to be a baby. A newborn baby. He, this is who he is. He's, right now, he's, be, he's, he's born. He's a newborn baby. And he's not wrapped in garments of gold and silver, precious gems. He's wrapped in cloths. He's swaddled. And he's not sitting in a palace. Where are they going to find him? You're going to find him in an animal stall. You're going to find him in a place. You ever walk into, get back to Drew. You ever walk into a barn? You know, you're taking a nice walk and you walk into a barn and you feel like someone just plugged you with something you can't believe the smell of this stuff. Even a cleaned out one. If you have to clean one out, I've cleaned out barns before. And after you clean it out, it's all clean. You come out of there and people say, what in the heck happened to you? You're completely red. Your nose is coming down. You're running. Your nose is running. And you, you think I'm breathing fine now, but you come out and you kind of, <coughs> in the, for about five hours, you're coughing up this stuff. That's where he's going to be born, in a barn, in a stable where cows and animals are kept. Pretty specific. And he's going to be lying in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's this little device that you feed your animals with. You put this thing out, you throw the food in it, and they come up and eat out of it. They threw hay in it. Straw, more than likely. Hay's the food, straw's the batting stuff. You throw the straw in it and lay down your blanket and there's your king right there on top of there. And we should have some kind of aerosol during 
nativity scenes. So as soon as somebody walks up, you go, here's your little aerosol packet. To get their full effect, I want you to go like this, and then you walk up to this manger. What in the world did you tell? And so you're telling somebody 30 years later, I went to this live nativity over there at that place. You know what the first thing you did? They handed me this thing. I smelled it. Man, I thought I was in a barn. I'll never forget that smell. It's very specific. <laughs> it's just not specifically what we anticipated. And you'll find he'll be lying in an animal food manger. We clean it up with the word manger, but it's a food device. Very specific, isn't it? Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, beautifully expressing what Pastor Melson talked about today. Those on whom his favor rests. You know, we can go through the intricacies of uh, the atonement and application of the atonement, the universal atonement or the specific atonement. We can why? Because it's right there. Do you think the shepherds thought, oh, let's stop a second. Now, I'm not sure. I really believe that, you know, they start going through what is the atonement and who's it for and how it was accomplished. Of course not. But it's there, isn't it? There's nothing lacking, in other words. They got everything they need. Some things are compartmentalized. Some things are compressed. Some people are right out in the, things are right out in the open, like the smell. But they got all this information. And the angels had left them and gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another. Read it with me. Read it with me. What's the next thing? Let's go to Bethlehem. Read it again. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let us go. Let us go with a message to see this thing and to talk about this thing that had happened to us. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph. And the, By the way, what did they hurry off with? Shepherds don't just leave their sheep out there and hurry off. Hurrying off to a shepherd is, okay, let's go. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. They're hurrying. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. You know, I get saved. I want to go win the whole world right now. It's not a marathon. It's not, it is a marathon. In fact, it's more like a long walk. It's like walking the Appalachian Trail. It's not even like a marathon. We're not called to go right now and save as many people as we can. In fact, if you do that, you won't be doing it very long. If your goal is you're so excited about Jesus, you're going to tell everybody you know, probably going to isolate most of the people you know, where if you just go slowly, you might just get a chance to talk to everybody you meet. Make your goal of evangelism like a shepherd. You've got to kind of take everything with you to go there. And so they go. They hurried off as a shepherd would. And they found Mary and Joseph Okay, that's not on the list. So, okay, we found this guy and this lady. They're in a shepherd's barn. But there before them was the baby who was lying in the manger. Everything the shepherds had heard was now verified by this discovery of what they found in a manger. The baby who was lying in a manger, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this so instructive. I mean, we just touched the surface of the instruction there is here for disciples. 
You frustrated because you haven't led anybody to the Lord lately? You frustrated because of it? Just start asking God, Lord, use me. Make me a person of fruitfulness. Let me bear fruit. And don't put any conditions on it. You know, let me go there and go there and go there and learn this and see this and understand that and get this together. Just say, Lord, let me be a fruit bearer. Because you know what? Trees don't go looking for fruit. Fruit grows on a tree. People come to the tree to eat the fruit. Fountains don't move around. People come to fountains. And in us is a fountain of living water bubbling up. I don't feel that way yet. Well, you better get on your knees. Because something you're blocking something. Because in every one of us, there's this fountain. And there's this fruitfulness. And these shepherds become this incredible example. And from here on, if we just continue through Luke or Matthew or Mark or John, everything that happens, first thing you see is, and they went and they told. What happened at the tomb? What happened the first, when Jesus was first resurrected from the dead? What did the angel tell Mary? I'm giving the answer. Go. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell Thomas. Go and tell Peter. Go and tell John. Which depends on which gospel you look at. Go tell the disciples. Even the Emmaus travelers, after Jesus has given them the revelation of himself along that road, and they said, We thought that he was the one, but you know, he's dead now. It's been three days, he's dead. And he appeared to them. And they, and they rushed back to tell those that they'd been with the Lord. Do you remember those times? Are they extending themselves still into our lives? Or do we get a lot of things in our way? Well, I would do that except I don't have time right now. <laughs> if you find that you're a Christian, God's going to send you people. You're not going to go look for them. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to start asking you questions. And Peter said, all you got to be ready is to be ready to answer the question for anything someone asks you according to the faith that lies within you. That's God's method. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And we see it so classically expressed here in the lives of these shepherds that we have such a great identity with in our own lives. God bless you.